listeners. This is Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. I'm thrilled to extend you an invitation to join us for a special limited podcast series, the September 6th, 30 Years On. In this series, we delve into the profound events and lasting impact of the September 6th, a group of intellectuals and scholars who, in 1993, faced disciplinary actions from The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. These events ignited vital discussions about freedom of expression, theology, and the role of dissent within the LDS community. Our first episode opens with an extraordinary recording from the Sunstone Symposium session entitled Spiritual Paths of the September 6, 30 Years Later. This live recording, which took place on July 29, 2023, brings together an array of voices. Albert Peck, Sarah M. Patterson, Margaret Toscano, Lynn Whitesides, Maxine Hanks, and Barbara Jones-Brown. Their reflections on their journeys and discussions about the enduring impact of their paths make for compelling listening. As we move ahead, our second episode guides us to a roundtable conversation called Contemporary Perspectives on the 30th Anniversary of the September 6th. In this thought-provoking dialogue, I had the honor of moderating a conversation with distinguished voices, including Jana Reese, Patrick Q. Mason, Christine Hagland, Benjamin E. Park, and Amanda Hendricks Komodo. These insightful individuals share contemporary viewpoints on the 30th anniversary of these events, shedding light on the transformative journey from then until now. Last but not least, our third and final episode shines a spotlight on author Sarah M. Patterson and her captivating new release, The September 6th and the Struggle for the Soul of Mormonism, published by Signature Books this fall. An event you won't want to miss, it's scheduled for October 5th at 7 p.m. in the Salt Lake City Public Library's main auditorium, situated at 210 East, 400 South. The views expressed in this podcast series belong solely to the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of Dialogue or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please join us on this enlightening journey as each episode unveils a captivating tapestry of perspectives, narratives, and insights, all surrounding this pivotal moment in modern Mormon history. My name's Albert Peck. I used to be at Sunstone for 15 years, but that was 22 years ago, um, and it's great to be back. Welcome to session 265 of the 2023 Sunstone Symposium, Spiritual Paths of the September 6th, 30 years later. Early in September 1993, we learned that Lynn Whitesides, a former organizer of the Sunstone Symposium and a founder of the Mormon Women's Forum, had received a summons to a bishop's court for her public comments on, among other things, Mother in Heaven. On the night of September 14th, while she was meeting inside with her bishop, a lot of her friends gathered and held vigil on the meeting house's steps, burning candles, singing hymns, trying to make sense of the unfolding events. A week later, we were in the parking lot of Paul Toscano's Stake Center, again poignantly singing hymns and lamenting the plight of our comrades. Sad, dazed, and perplexed by the emerging outline of the drama. Days later, in lieu of a vigil for the church court she chose not to attend, Levine and Fielding Anderson convened an electric meeting in the evening with hymns, speakers, and testimonials. Maxine Hanks and D. Michael Quinn similarly chose not to attend their courts, 
And we only heard vague reports of the court for Avraham Gileadi, a sweet conservative Isaiah scholar. With all the phone calls, speculations, and relentless news stories, it was a dramatic, emotional month. Given the church's historical tension with public thinkers, we shouldn't have been surprised. Our friends were part of a pattern of ongoing attempts by the authorities to rein in divergent thoughts, liberal ones, conservative ones, too true, believing ones, revisionist ones, and reformers. Some highlights of that history. Just four months, just four months after the church was organized, Brother Joseph rebuked Hiram Page for getting alternate seer stone revelations. Fourteen years later, Joseph died for destroying the dissenting Nauvoo expositor. In the late 1860s, Brigham Young wasn't happy with the challenges from young freethinkers, about whom then-Apostle George Q. Cannon stated, A friend wished to know whether we considered an honest difference of opinion between a member and the authorities was apostasy. We replied that, we could conceive of a man honestly differing in opinion from the authorities and yet not be an apostate. But we could not conceive of a man, of a man publishing these differences and, be, and not be an apostate. Cannon's statement was quoted in the General Conference the month after the September 6th by President James E. Faust. The moral was, think what you want, but don't go public. In 1912, Church President Joseph F. Smith had the then little-known and controversial King Follett sermon literally cut out of the first printing of B.H. Roberts' History of the Church. In the 1920s, BYU purged its evolution teachers. In the 1930s, it did the same. The Church did the same with its sociologists. Famously, in 1946, Von Brody was excommunicated. And in the 1950s, philosopher Sterling McBurn was almost excommunicated save for the intervention of church president David O. McKay. In the 1960s, Lowell Benyon was fired for sharing his views on blacks in the priesthood, and Elder Bruce Armour Conkey had to revise hundreds of passages in his Mormon doctrine. In the 1970s, it was the feminist turn, and then the historians. In 1981, now apostle Bruce R. McConkie chastised Eugene England for publishing his divergent thoughts on the progression of God. It is your province to echo what I say, <laughs> or to remain silent. <laughs> By the 1980s, the number of free thinkers multiplied, as did their outlets for expression, that's when Sunstone was organized, and inevitably, so did the hand slapping. In the mid-1980s, local leaders were instructed to meet with dozens of scholars and intellectuals, in what was affectionately then called the Inquisition. While the John Birch Society and Cleon Skousen's Freeman Institute were kept off of BYU, and hundreds of end-time Mormon conservatives were disciplined. So the church was an equal opportunity discipliner. <laughs> By April 8, 1989, more and more people were called in, and three general conference talks targeted the issue of dissent, notably Elder Dallin Oaks's alternate voices ad address. Two years after that, immediately after the 1991 Sunstone Symposium, came the official discussion-chilling statement on symposia. Concerned with the acceleration of incidents, 
Levina Fielding Anderson compiled a gripping chronology of all the episodes that she could identify. After her final entry, which was in January 1993, she concluded, and that brings us up to date. (laughs) Of course, September was just months away, and Levina would be excommunicated in part for compiling that chronology of ecclesiastical abuse. It's now been 30 years since that traumatic month, and we're still working out what it means to possess an independent mind in our culture. Although with the internet, information is now harder to control. This is the third Sunstone panel on the 6th. Similar ones were convened on the 5th and 10th anniversaries. We care for these individuals who would not remain silent. And we yearn for a glimpse and update on their journeys and thoughts. Today's panel, will occupy, which will occupy this hour and this and the following hour, has a total of seven speakers. One historian who will put the events in a larger context, four rep- representatives of the original six, and two authors who were later excommunicated as part of, of that larger trend. In this hour, we will hear from four panelists. First, we'll hear from Sarah Patterson, a professor of theological studies and gender studies at Hanover College. She's the author of a new book on the September 6th, which will come out this fall from Signature Books. She'll put the events of 1993 in a larger context. Then Lynn Whitesides, who has become a life coach, will reflect on her journey. Lynn will be followed by Maxine Hanks. Just a year before 1993, Maxine edited the groundbreaking Woman and Authority, Reemerging Mormon Feminism, which got so many people in trouble, Maxine. <laughs> Since then, undaunted, Max has persisted as a theologian, a historian, a lecturer, and a rebaptized Mormon who researches gender in Mormon and Christian traditions. D. Michael Quinn, who died two years ago, and we miss him, was a distinguished Mormon historian known for his myth-busting research on Mormonism's hierarchy. Barbara Jones, who has edited Mike's forthcoming memoir and will share relevant excerpts, which she will share relevant excerpts from it. Barbara is the director of Signature Books and is an accomplished Mormon historian, notably on the Mountain Meadows Massacre. So now we'll hear first from Sarah, then Lynn, Maxine, and Barbara, and that will pretty much fill out the hour. So, here we go. Greetings all. I'm so sorry that I couldn't be there with you today. I'm in Northern Ireland now, planning a class about peace and reconciliation. My trip has been a long time in the making. Otherwise, I would not miss this. I've been asked to give a general overview of the time period now called the September 6. This is a difficult task for anyone, probably, but especially for me. First, I am someone who has been spending a long time deconstructing the alliterative allure of the September 6th. So a summary is especially hard. 
Second, I'm keenly aware that the people on this panel understand aspects of this time in a visceral way that I will never know. Historians have different perspectives than historical actors. Their sources of knowledge can often be different, and I appreciate and recognize that distinction. You, audience, are lucky to hear from eyewitnesses. As a researcher, I hope to achieve a perspective that can appreciate the visceral and try to connect the dots of individual experiences and put them in conversation with broader cultural discussions taking place. I will try to do some of that in my brief time today. Wikipedia, a shared source encyclopedia, has a surprisingly restrained discussion of the episode now remembered as the September 6th. As a general overview, the text has three descriptive sentences explaining that the September 6th were church members who experienced church discipline all in the same month and that the church's actions were, quote, referred to by some as evidence of an anti-intellectual posture, end quote. The entry then turns to a list of the six. Lynn Whitesides, Avraham Gileadi, Paul Toscano, Maxine Hanks, Levina Fielding Anderson, and D. Michael Quinn, offering a few sentences of explanation for their disciplinary proceedings and identifying the person's current relationship to the church. In the midst of Paul Toscano's description are a few sentences about his wife, Margaret, who was excommunicated in November 2000 for her feminist research and publications. It goes on to say, quote, some view her excommunication as constituting a seventh member of the September 6th, as she was summoned in 1993, but ecclesiastical focus shifted to her husband, end quote. I guess this makes it the September 7th. After discussing how disciplinary proceedings work generally in the church, the entry ends with a statement that, quote, the LDS church later excommunicated Janice Merrill Allred in 1995 and Margaret Merrill Toscano in 2000, both of whom had collaborated with several of the September 6, end quote. And now we're at September 8. The Wikipedia entry, I would argue, is evidence of the allure of the alliteration, as well as its many limitations. The human mind is always looking for patterns, clustering events so as to make them more memorable. We have a strong urge to make sense and order out of things that seem sloppy, chaotic, and hard to explain. This is especially true when it comes to historical memory. We want to impose limitations and boundaries, to imbue those limitations with meaning so that we can store them in our minds in neat chunks. We want to tame them. While those clusters can be helpful in quickly communicating with one another, they can become so cemented in our minds that we look no further than the meaning that has already been conveyed. This is very true of the episode that we typically remember as the September 6th. We remember confidently that there were six and that we know the reasons why. Explanations have accrued about that month in roughly two patterns. On one side are those who remember the September 6th as a time when the conservative and anti-intellectual institutional church clamped down on public expression of free thinking and personal conscience in its membership, 
sending a clear message that one must stay in line or get out. On the other side are those who defend the church's choices as difficult ones, necessary to prevent the church from decaying away from the true church Joseph Smith restored. Necessary because church leaders wanted to create unity and a strong sense of purpose in the church membership as it was rapidly expanding around the globe. Both explanations have become overly and destructively simplified by the limitations placed around the September 6, leaving us to remember just one month rather than an era in which church leadership clashed with church members over what the meaning of the faith and the meaning of the restoration would be. People on all sides of these debates define the culture of Mormonism for years to come. As the church expanded around the world in the late 20th century, I argue the church hierarchy responded to new diversity and membership numbers by constructing a vision of the restoration rooted in a purity system where the categories of pure and impure or worthy and unworthy, clean and unclean, insider and outsider came to carry great significance. Purity systems are not built into any cultural or historical context. Rather, they are constructed and maintained in particular times and places. Because the church was experiencing new growth and because the institution was increasingly aligning itself with the religious right, a movement that understood itself and its values to be under attack by forces in the broader culture, the church hierarchy came to focus on purity as its central concern in the late 20th century. In a purity system, behaviors, geographies, individuals, and social groups are all mapped onto the categories of pure and impure. Priesthood holders were at the center of the LDS purity system and dictated both its boundaries and its terms. And this system also had a vision of God as a being who was primarily concerned with with living a life of requirements, following the rules and rewarding those who bound themselves to the hierarchies of the system. Individual bodily purity was certainly a component of that purity system, but purity is not just individual. A purity system is structural and is political to its core. The church rooted its purity system in its history telling, and church leaders' history telling was about the nature of the restoration. They understood their work as protecting orthodoxy, In May 1993, Elder Boyd K. Packard of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles gave a talk to the church's Correlation Committee, the committee responsible for ensuring doctrinal orthodoxy, unity, and singularity in the church's teachings. In that talk, Packard described intellectualism, feminism, and the gay-lesbian rights movement as outside infiltrators, not indigenous to the church. Portraying these as outsider threats to the restoration made the disciplining of believers who fell into those categories all the more easy and imperative. Their very existence threatened the ability of the institution to stay its course. Packer simply expressed the church hierarchy's anxieties about purity. He was calling to believers to come and defend their church. 
the rhetoric of the institutional church highlighted the hierarchy's emphasis on purity. After the September 1993 disciplinary councils, the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve issued a statement in which they said they wanted the public to know that, quote, we have the responsibility to preserve the doctrinal purity of the church. We are united in this objective, end quote. The institution was after the preservation of purity at the same time that observers, including Albert Peck, the executive director of Sunstone, noted that church officials felt, quote, the church is fragmenting into factions and this crackdown is an attempt to keep us together, end quote. Peck recognized that the fear of doctrinal fragmentation caused particular anxiety in restoration movements. The church was concerned that there could be, quote, church-wide apostasy, which Latter-day Saints believed destroyed the ancient church established by Jesus Christ and his apostles, end quote. And so the pressure felt immense. Managing the theological teachings of a global church was a Herculean task. Excommunications and disciplinary actions surely felt like a warning sign to those who might lead others astray. Added to that immense pressure was the comfort that, in the words of Church President Gordon B. Hinckley, our responsibility is not to please the world, but rather to do the will of the Lord. And from the beginning, the divine will has been, has been so often contrary to the ways of the world. Thus, church leaders assured church members that criticism from the outside may well be evidence that the church was on the right path. The individuals who came to be dubbed the September 6th were not working in concert. They were not the only dissenters in the church. They did not have a master plan to challenge the purity system. Yet what they did, their community building, their scholarship, their activism, and their beliefs amounted to a challenge. That challenge, though, was heterogeneous, offered in fits and starts, and never unified. Rather, it demonstrated the diversity that in reality had been part of the church all along, even as the institution sought to unify, standardize, and correlate. Neither side in this struggle between the hierarchy and dissenters was immune to external political forces or social movements around them. In the late 20th century, the institutional church worked hard to align itself with the religious right. Its anti-intellectualism, its emphasis on the historicity of scriptures, its political activism and theological arguments against anything other than heterosexual monogamy and its claims about women, the family, and the home worked to cement the church's social and political bonds with conservative evangelical forces. Dissenters at the time contested in various ways the very idea that God was most concerned with holiness and purity. They were molded by feminist theologies and political activism. They were formed by new historical methodologies that shaped history telling about both ancient and modern times. 
They were framed within an, in an era of civil rights in which the movements for black, women's, and LGBTQ plus rights enhanced their vision of egalitarianism. They offered a different vision of the restoration. Whether as leaders of the institutional church or individual members within it, all of the people involved argued that theirs was the vision rooted in the true church. Each claimed that their vision was the one that had not wavered from Joseph Smith's, that the other sides had been swayed by contextual forces that had knocked them off the path. In this one way, at least, all sides were wrong. All of the people involved in this story were profoundly shaped by the cultural and theological ideas swirling around them. Their arguments had roots both external to the Mormon tra tradition and indigenous to it. They were all products of their time, arguing for what the meaning of the restoration might be. They were struggling for the soul of Mormonism. Thank you. I just need a drink of water first. A little bit, okay. Because I'm tall. Is that better? No. Is that better? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. A few weeks ago, a client came to a session wearing a hat that said, Holy shit, we're alive. Which led me to think about how we live on a ball that is hurtling through space, just far enough away from the sun to not fry us or freeze us. The ball spins, we don't fall off, and it sprouts food. We take all this for granted, but we are part of a mystical miracle every day. Which led me to think about the question for this panel, where are you spiritually 30 years later? One thing I know is that life is a very personal journey. And my life, like everyone's, has twists and turns and ups and downs. Some of the most difficult experiences that I never expected have turned into some of the most amazing, beautiful life changes that I could never have imagined. There have been divorces and marriages, births and deaths, betrayals and forgiveness. Actually, everything that makes a really good novel. <laughs> Not long after the church authorities asked me to go find something else to do. To <laughs> Two events happened in rapid succession. I found an amazing therapist who I've been working with for 30 years, at, at first as my therapist and now as a supervisor for my life coaching practice. And for the last 24 years, I've, been in a weekly, I've, been, I've met in a weekly training group of therapists, psychiatrists, <clears throat> psychologists, a few artists, and me. This is a Jungian-based group, and the information and experience in it has been so important and has impacted my life and my life as a life coach. And then I found plant medicine. It's more accurate to say plant medicine found me. Let me say here that I am not a Native American or a Weichel or a Quechua, and I don't pretend to be, but I have worked with medicine people from each of those cultures. They have been generous and incredibly loving to me, and I am eternally grateful to them. 
I sat in a ceremony with a medicine man on Lake Atitlan in Guatemala who told us the reason he was sharing his medicine with us was because, in his words, our country was a dragon spewing its garbage everywhere. Some of his people said, that ship is going to go down. Let it go down. But the wise elders said that, that ship, their ship is attached to our ship. So they were sending medicine people to the United States to share their ceremonies to help our culture wake up. Those ceremonies helped me to un- deeply understand that we are one big family on the planet. A d- pretty dysfunctional family, but a family, and we are all connected. What happens in one place on the planet affects everyone in some way or another. For several years, I partic- participated in huichol ceremonies with the Matakame, which means one who speaks to spirits. The Matakame was in his 80s when I met him, and he could out-hike all of us and we were in our 30s and 40s. Every single one of those ceremonies was pretty amazing. But there was one 10-day ceremony that I will never forget. About 12 of my friends and I caravaned to somewhere in Mexico where we spent time with a bull and a doe. After three days, they brought them into the circle where we were sitting and sacrificed them. And then they were cooked, and we ate them. It was one of the most visceral experiences of my life. I understood so deeply that all life feeds life, whether it's an animal or a plant, and I realized that whatever I am eating has given its life and has been sacrificed into the fire of my body, my temple, so that I can have this life. Food is spiritual. For the last 12 years, I've been organizing trips to Peru. I bring groups of 15 people on every trip, and every trip has been full of unpredictable and wild but beautiful experiences. I have been in ceremonies with a Quechua medicine man several times inside of Machu Picchu. We take a plant medicine, and then we hike all over what remains of the city. He sings while we walk and also explains the history and the myths of the Inca. He knows many secret places in the city because he worked there for 20 years. One time I asked him, who built the thousands of steps up to Mount Machu Picchu? And he said, no one knows. They were there before the Inca. So many cultures coming and going. It is a humbling experience to feel connected in a place like that to ancient cultures. And you realize that we are just another culture coming through. For the last 23 years, I've been working with a woman who is the reason I take groups to Peru and who comes from a long ayahuasca lineage. I really have no words that can adequately capture my experience of being in those ceremonies. The closest I can come to is to say... I feel loved beyond belief by that unfathomable energy that created the universe and all it contains. And that love extends to all of creation. What I get from spending two weeks on her land twice a year is a beautiful beautiful addition to what happens in ceremony. When she bought the land her retreat center is on 15 years ago, it was deforested. Over the years, it has become a beautiful paradise with gardens and butterflies, birds, frogs, Spending time there has given me a somatic point of reference that connects me to the organic rhythm of nature. And I am finding ways to weave that into my own day-to-day life, which helps me to be connected to the living spirit of the earth. While all my times and ceremonies are valuable, it doesn't mean much if I can't take it back into my day-to-day life. Chasins and the way we feel don't happen overnight. What I have felt happening spiritually for me over the last 30 years is a softening and shedding of some of my protective layers and the ability to have a felt sense of the interconnectedness of all things, which widens my capacity for compassion for myself and for others. 
I have come to realize that everyone is doing what they're doing for a really good reason. It may not be what I think, but it makes sense to them. We are all at the end of a very long line of ancestors who have passed down beliefs, belief systems, and ideas from generation to generation. Some of them are healthy, and some are limiting. If you're lucky enough to understand that you can let go of the limiting beliefs that have been passed down to you, and you follow the thread to letting them go, your journey becomes more and more interesting. My last 30 years working with plants, beautiful medicine people, and my therapeutic community has impacted me personally, interpersonally, and transpersonally. This holistic and integral way of life has offered a deeper inner cohesiveness and given me the tools to implement this wisdom into my personal life and practice. These experiences have inspired a perspective that guides me forward. About 25 years ago, I discovered the poetry of Rumi. Reading his poetry always makes, makes me feel like I'm coming home. One of my favorite poems by Rumi goes like this. If God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, nor any act I would not bow to. I, too, would bow to and am so grateful for every step of my life. My time working for Sunstone was pivotal for me. I am so grateful to you, Albert, because you mentored me into not only understanding how to do a symposium, because I did not have any idea what I was doing when we first came, but you also did something more important. You held a space for me to come into my own authority and to trust myself. And I will forever be grateful for the kind, incredibly loving person you are. I'm also grateful to Daniel Rector and the staff because that was an amazing four years of my life. I'm grateful to the Mormon Church for being such a patriarchal organization. which enabled me to clearly understand what I believe and and helped me to find a voice to talk about it. I am profoundly and deeply grateful for every single step of my journey that has led me to right here, right now. I am profoundly grateful and deeply in love with the divine because holy shit, I'm alive. those stairs. Well, I assume most of you came to hear from heretics from the 1990s and not from chaplains who've returned to the church. (laughs) But my journey embodies both. Sorry, but... And my position, though, in 1993 was paradoxical, too. Thank you. We, We six shared... We all shared church rejection. Yet we each had different relationships with the church. I'd been inactive for 10 years before 1993, so I didn't fear excommunication. Also, I felt sort of responsible for the purge of 93 because my book, Women in Authority, appeared in January and ignited Elder Packer's fears triggering church discipline for Mike Quinn and myself in February and for others that year. So I met with the area, Salt Lake Area 70 to try to explain our historical and feminist work which totally failed, quickly followed by Elder Packer's Three Greatest Dangers speech, making me wonder if I had triggered that, too. I felt responsible for getting my contributors into trouble, since I had 
coerced them or begged them or pleaded for them to be in the book at a time when people were afraid to be in a book like that. So everyone who agreed to be in that book was incredibly brave at a very difficult time. Um, Mike, whose excommunication destroyed his career, suffered the most from being in the book, Women and Authority. And then I felt additional guilt for personally feeling liberated and validated by excommunication when other people were in so much pain. I didn't cry. I celebrated at Lakai. My narrative in 1993 was not typical because the church did not write my narrative. I did. I saw the purge as the church's shadow, not mine. And I saw positive results within the negative results of the purge. Narrative is how we make sense of our lives and find our meaning and identity. So I stood in solidarity with the others as scapegoats, symbols, while also living a different narrative privately. However, one thing I think we all shared was our return to roots, the spiritual origins of Mormonism. Not a pure or true vision, as Sarah mentions, but the source that shattered status quo via vision and mysticism, a living divine and its call to consciousness. Not idealism or factionalism, but the collective body of Christ. In 1994, as the refiner's fire, John L. Brooks said that I and Mike Quinn and the Toscanos had all exhibited, quote, Views tinged with hermetic tradition and hermetic interpretation of Mormon cosmology, end quote. Meaning, we all worked on the reconciliation of opposites. I think he was accurate. I think he found a commonality others had missed. We weren't claiming that we had the answers. We just wanted the freedom to find them. And we weren't the only members disciplined that year or that decade, which became a purge of the 1990s, not just 93. We were the tip of an iceberg. Dozens of scholars and feminists were questioned that year, while BYU professors Dave Knowlton, Cecilia Farr, and Gail Houston lost their jobs, and Martha Bradley and Jean England and Scott Abbott eventually felt constrained to leave BYU. Then Aaron Silva, Brent Metcalf, and David Wright were all exed in 1994, the next year, followed by Janice Allred in 95 and Margaret Toscano in 2000. The purge years impacted countless family and friends, members and leaders, supporters, and even reporters like Peggy Stack and Paul Murphy, not to mention an entire generation of scholars and students who self-censored or abandoned BYU or Mormon studies altogether. The true scope of the purge of 93 and the 90s was hundreds of narratives, including and especially the church leaders who had the difficult task of interrogating us all. We won't know the full story until all the stories are known. When I met with my stake president again, two decades later in 2013, I sat and listened as he unburdened the anguish, pain, and regret that he had personally carried for 20 years, believing that he had consigned me and Mike Quinn to eternal celestial exile, or fun, depending on your perspective. (laughs) I told him to just let go of it all. Don't carry that anymore. The excommunication had opened the way for me to transformation and growth that I never would have found and that I would not trade for anything. Perhaps the most profound narratives were the hidden ones behind every story. Each of us six had received spiritual help that year in dreams and promptings from a higher source guiding each one of us. I didn't know this until I read Latter-day Descent and discovered that we all reported the same spiritual experiences. 1993 brought an outpouring of divine aid and inspiration for me personally. This is one of the positive narratives of the purge. 
Our narratives can be healing, even in tragedy. As Dan McAdams said in The Stories We Live By, we are our stories. So if we revise our story, we revise our life and its meaning. My narrative found real benefits amid devastating harms and costs of the purge. Two dominant narratives of 1993 were both quite negative. Either we were enemies of the church or we were its victims. Yet a third narrative emerged, oddly enough, from Elder Packer when he confessed the Mormon shadow, the feared, avoided, repressed LDS self. By shaming the scholars, feminists, and gays, he inadvertently named the church as shadow workers. Those who bear the shadow in any community are the strong, brave, tenacious ones who will go where others fear to tread. Shadow work is a healing process, and it's an empowered one. The purge was actually a hero's journey. Yet the purge was often viewed as a tragedy, a disaster that only brought harm and never should have happened. Well, what if it was inevitable? What if it had to happen? Because critical inquiry into church history and theology had reached a point of public confrontation with itself that it could not avoid any longer. Leaders had to deal with the unexamined aspects of our tradition, or they had to deal with those who had been dealing with the unexamined aspects of our tradition. The church's encounter with dissenting and deconstructive work had to happen in public because it couldn't happen within the church discourse. This required scapegoats who had to absorb the shock of disorientation and discomfort for the church. The purge of 1993 was a shift from private to public confrontation with itself, and it took a full decade before it could finally acclimate to public engagement of revisionist history and theology in less traumatic and more productive ways. The 90s purge actually began in 1990 when the state president began questioning me about my feminist work, and I think it ended with Margaret Toscano's excommunication in 2000, after, the ch- after which the church began embracing public scholarly investigations of LDS history and theology in Mormon Studies conferences, in the Joseph Smith Papers, and many other things that began happening from 2001 onward. So the purge decade kind of reminds me of Holy Week, with my discipline at one end and Margaret's at the other, like Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene anointing Jesus on the weekends with a crucifixion in between. Also, if we six actually received divine aid, the implication is that God was helping the heretics. Yet our leaders felt the same way. God was guiding them too. What if God didn't take sides but was helping all of us? If the purge had a higher divine purpose orchestrated by God or the collective consciousness, then it needed all of us to play our parts, heretics and leaders. That was actually the answer I received in July of 1993 when I prayed for direction about whether to resign the church to avoid excommunication or not. The answer I got was, no, you need to be excommunicated. It's meant to be, because many people are going to learn from this. Also, another positive aspect of the purge was that media visibility did the opposite of silencing us. It made us famous. It magnified our message ten times, giving it far more power and credibility than, than it ever had before. Our national exposure was overwhelming. We were accidental celebrities. I was an introverted feminist theological nerd. I never dreamed I'd be on Nightline with Ted Koppel or in Publishers Weekly. My friends were calling me and asking... Max, why are you and Uncle Dallin on CNN? The purge made sure that the public knew about the issues that we were all raising. Without that scandal, our feminist theology probably wouldn't have sold through two printings, with new printings still coming 30 years later. 
And Mike Quinn's historical tomes of footnotes might not have lacked as much notoriety as they got. Well, his unhirable status enabled him to work 24-7 to produce all those books and articles. Seeing both sides of the purge, positive and negative, I think releases us from one interpretation that is only negative. But why did it take a whole decade to process this? I think because fear and trauma had accrued for 160 years in LDS tradition. I think Mormons have been traumatized since the 1812 surgery on seven-year-old Joseph Smith's leg, sans anesthetics. So critics trigger leaders who trigger apologists, who trigger ex-members, who trigger members. Maybe if little Joseph had swigged some whiskey, we'd all be relaxed Protestants (laughs) on the East Coast instead of traumatized teetotalers in the Western Desert. So so how do we heal a 200-year-old trauma and shadow? Therapy, safe space, and new narratives. Yet what can we do when relationships are intractably fractured and drag on for decades with catastrophic and irreparable harm? I think when the church is unable to heal itself, God can still heal, still heal us individually. What if God has been healing us all along? There is a higher power than presidency. The absence of social belonging can catalyze spiritual embrace. I felt this when the Church Historical Department asked Mike Quinn to consult on post-manifesto polygamy, and the LDS Church newsroom cited his book on LDS finance on the church website. And when Levina received the Association for Mormon Letters Lifetime Achievement Award at BYU, her alma mater. And when I read Janice Allred's poem about the names of the mother in Dove Song's anthology of Mormon poetry, the only excommunicated member in the book, And when I saw Margaret Toscano's quotes from women in authority embroidered on white linen veils in an art exhibit at BYU that felt like walking into a temple. It felt like Margaret was in the temple again. Our names don't appear in the footnotes of church publications or gospel topics, essays, yet our pioneering work is embedded in the subtexts, enabling the progress. In 2012, I felt the spiritual call to return to the church to heal what happened in 1993. Everyone was surprised, including me. Yet I always was an enigma to others while I was compiling women in authority and when I was excommunicated and then when I was rebaptized. God called me to do all three. It was the same work, just different stages of the journey. Because when God calls you to do something, you do it, no matter what others think. I was called to belong as an unorthodox feminist theologian. In 2012, I saw our shadow work shifting back to within, inside the church, in the Mormon moment, and I'm a Mormon campaign, and Joseph Smith papers, and Relief Society Minutes Online, and church leaders citing women's access to priesthood. Shadow work did not end in the 90s, nor in public. It's ongoing, outside and inside the church today. I felt called to reverse what I had triggered 20 years earlier the misjudgment of scholarship and feminism that my book had had sparked. Healing is utterly personal, but has the church itself improved for the three greatest dangers since then? For scholars, yes. For women, somewhat. For LGBTs, very little. So one and a half out of three is progress, but not nearly enough. It feels like the church, formerly known as Mormon, still tends to party like it's 1993. In the last 10 years, discipline returned for a whole new six, 
Kate Kelly and John DeLynn, Denver Sneffer and Natasha Helfer, Gina Colvin and Sam Young. And BYU firings and departures continue as well today with Sue Bergen and Kaija Kafusi and several other adjuncts and, and teachers there. And LGBTs are still not accepted as equal members in our church, so we have very far to go. Meanwhile, every member, leader, and ex-member has their own narrative, and only together do, we, do they fully reveal the body of Christ. I like how Paul Toscano tends to talk about false teachings of the true church, and I tend to talk about true teachings of the false church. So we cover both sides. <laughs> members and leaders often reject each other, yet I think God holds us all in divine belonging that no one can take away. So today, I thank God for Sunstone and for all of you and for every editor and director and symposium planner of Sunstone for providing a place where we could process all of this for 30 or 40 years. Thank you. feeling a great weight being up here. Um, many of you may wonder who is that person and why is she up there. Um, as I told my fellow panelists, I, I do not pretend to speak for D. Michael Quinn, whose memoir I've been editing over the past year and a half, but I'm going to read to you his words. Um, and again, I felt a great weight as I was going through his long memoir. <laughs> um, trying to decide what Mike would want read from his memoir. So um, I did my best. And I will be sharing his words now. of, Of September 1993, he wrote that the charges were the same in all cases, apostasy and conduct unbecoming a church member. Most of us learned from chance remarks by our local leaders that Apostle Packer was coordinating this purge, despite official denials to the contrary. I drove to California as a scheduled keynote speaker in San Diego at the annual conference of affirmation for Mormon gays and lesbians. My last hurrah as an LDS rebel. I remained in California for two weeks to visit my mother and did not attend the disciplinary council that was scheduled for me in Utah. I received written notice that I was excommunicated on September 26, 1993, for my refusal to cooperate with the state president's inquiry into my alleged apostasy. Bad manners was my conduct, unbecoming a member of the church. I've often made that snide comment to conceal the raw pain of my experience. My excommunication was like a death in the family, except I was looking at myself in the coffin. The burning of the spirit within me made that grief bearable and gave me strength to go on. But the fact remains that the only life I ever wanted to live was dead. I was puzzled that the notice of excommunication didn't use the word apostasy, which the stake president had repeatedly applied to me since February. Nor did it mention my publications, which had started his inquisition. When a newspaper reporter asked about my excommunication, and by the way, that was my husband, Barbara Brown, um, 
when this newspaper reporter asked about my excommunication, I replied that I still believe in the essentials of Mormon faith, and I am a DNA Mormon. If I can judge my own feelings, I was not bitter then or since, even though I feel that LDS headquarters is wrong to force conformity and to use intimidation. On the other hand, I had a dream in October 1993 which gave me some comfort about my spiritual state here and in the hereafter. In the dream, I met Elder Packer in the afterlife. And we embraced in the fellowship of the gospel. I was encouraged that whatever ill will I have felt toward him or that he has apparently felt towards me is a temporary thing. Earthly hostility shall be followed by eternal reconciliation. That's my hope. In June 1998, Mike wrote, It has been exactly ten years since I commenced this memoir, which presents many experiences and feelings I had compartmentalized or suppressed. Although I hope to live productively and with reasonable happiness for many more years, It's time for a summation concerning my chosen path. Homosexuality was not the charge for which I was excommunicated, but I've often said that being a homosexual in Utah is extremely repressive. For me, it's gut-wrenching to know that otherwise good people hate me. I see this Mormon malice from both females and males, young, middle-aged, and old, in letters to the editor in Utah newspapers, in call-ins to radio talk shows, in postings on the internet, in hate stares I've sometimes encountered in Salt Lake City movie theaters and grocery stores, on BYU's campus since 1993, in publications by BYU religion professors, and in polemical reviews by BYU-affiliated farms. It may give these Latter-day Saints satisfaction to know that after I read or listen to these hateful expressions about me personally or about my writings, it's a struggle for me to get through the day. Since 1993, I've had recurring nightmares of someone breaking into my apartment and beating me to death with a baseball bat. The hugs and kind words I continue to receive from those at Sunstone Symposiums don't compensate for this. Even the remarkable charity of the LDS Historical Department didn't assuage my inner grief about Mormon culture in 1997 when its staff regranted me access to do research in LDS church archives. This was their immediate decision upon my spur-of-the-moment inquiry. Still, I don't think anything could compensate for the malice that other Mormons have manifested towards me. These are my people. Their God is my God. Church headquarters has fulfilled its determination to make me an ex-member, so the LDS Church and its problems are no longer my problem. While I've always admired social activists and reformers, I don't have the courage or stamina to be one. I earnestly believe that the LDS Church has adopted spiritually destructive policies, that it encourages self-frightenedness 
righteousness, and groupthink paranoia, that it uses anti-Christian intimidation, that it is coercive for anyone who varies from the homogenized norm, and that its leaders are indifferent to the least of these whom Jesus wants them to comfort and embrace. However, it's no longer my church, and change must come from the LDS leadership itself. I continue to pray, struggle with God, and feel the power of his spirit within me. But my Mormon struggle is over, and I feel a profound and unexpected relief that it's over. The LDS Church is the responsibility of its leaders. Where LDS policies hurt people, I feel the kind of detached compassion I feel for similar situations in other churches and religions. Prophets aren't infallible, but they remain Heavenly Father's leaders on earth. That is my faith. Just as it's my faith that God sanctions all loving relationships, including homosexual relationships. Had I accepted that truth when I received my patriarchal blessing at age 14, my life would have been very different. In 1998, Quinn wrote, During the five years since my excommunication, my experiences have caused significant reflection. In May 1995, LDS authorities in Provo excommunicated feminist Janice Merrill Allred for speaking and writing about Mother in Heaven. Likewise for her sister, Margaret Merrill Toscano, in the Salt Lake Valley in 2000. Ecclesiastical Terrorism I read the recently published biography, Boyd K. Packer, A Watchman on the Tower. Tears streamed down my face as I learned of his childhood as a scrawny, undersized kid who was bullied by his brothers at home and beaten up by classmates at school. Boys who experience such abuse usually go in one of two directions as adults. They become abusive bullies, or they become very compassionate toward anyone suffering of any kind. Packer became a spiritual bully as an LDS general authority and has remained indifferent about the suffering he causes. He certainly does not perceive his behavior as ecclesiastical abuse. Elder Packer's personal tragedy has become an institutional tragedy for Mormons who don't fulfill his expectations in the hierarchy or in the rank and file. I told Levina Fielding Anderson... I can see the tragedy and wounding that produced him, but I really can't talk about him without feeling anger, and that's no compliment to me. In March 1998, Leonard Arrington made an extraordinary statement to me. When he took me to an Italian restaurant for my 54th birthday, he told me that the University of Illinois Press would soon distribute his narrative about the years he was official church historian. Leonard said that he expected to be excommunicated for publishing his memoirs about the history, divisions, conflicts with Boyd K. Packer and other apostles. He said he was ready for that outcome. In June 1998, Quinn wrote, I am without a male lover or significant companion and will probably remain alone the rest of my life. Despite my sexual and emotional needs, isolation is what I seem to want. It's certainly what I've had. Someone recently asked me what I expect from the final judgment. 
I am confident that I will stand as close to our Heavenly Father or as distant from Him as we both feel comfortable. Many so-called Christians also feel that homosexuals are automatically deprived of Heavenly Father's Spirit and His presence. These people do not understand God, the Spirit, or the New Testament. Jesus taught that the Spirit comes and goes as it chooses once a person receives it. After I was born of the Spirit long ago, the Spirit has continued to fill me with its comfort and burning presence, even as an excommunicated Mormon. As far as the final judgment and other metaphysical things go, like the Apostle Paul, I see through a glass darkly. And I, can see, and I see enough to understand that Jesus never mentioned homosexual behavior in his various condemnations and criticisms of mankind's behavior. In that regard, I cherish his parable of the, of the great banquet, as well as God's words after Peter's vision of the great net. I was excommunicated from the LDS Church exactly six months before I turned 50, the age at which I once thought I would become an apostle. I have to smile about that now. Notwithstanding all my efforts, I haven't been very successful as a Mormon, as a husband, or as a middle-aged seeker of homosexual companionship. I've been a successful historian, yet that doesn't compensate for the personal losses but it's the life I chose to live in the circumstances I found myself. I'm grateful for the sunshine that fell across my path. My main regret is that I didn't do more with it. On March 26, 2009, Quinn wrote, LDS polemicists publicly referred to me as a former Mormon intellectual and to Mormonism as my, quote, former religion. But that is the equivalent of Catholics discussing Martin Luther as a former Christian because he was excommunicated by the only Christian church he acknowledged. As a DNA Mormon, Mormonism is still my seventh-generation heritage. Yet I regard the LDS Church as God's dysfunctional family on earth. Despite being an uppity gay Mormon at the back of the LDS bus, I trust in the eternal priority of my personal relationship with the Heavenly Father of all humanity. Likewise, while I was doing research for this, writing this memoir in 2009, it was really nice to be called Brother Quinn by the History Department's part-time volunteers and missionary aides in the church history library. It's old-timers call me Mike. Good-hearted people, these Mormons. Both non-believers and believers are obviously puzzled that I can be slashingly critical of a church whose faith claims I nonetheless affirm. I have tried to present Mormon history positively, even while examining its problems so vigorously and in so much detail. To the best of my ability, I've tried to explain such juxtapositions in the hundreds of pages of my memoir, which I hope you all look forward to reading this fall when we publish it by Signature Books.
Hello, this is Andrew Hall, host of the Dialogue Book Report. Each episode features brilliant minds from the world of Mormon publishing. One thing we like to do is instead of focusing on a single guest, we like to bring in two or more guests who are working in similar fields and put their works in conversation with each other. Recently, we brought in Michael Austin and Stephen Carter, two of the leading cultural commentators of Mormonism in the 21st century, and had them talk about their recent biographies of two of the great minds of the 20th century, Vardis Fisher and Virginia Sorensen. You can subscribe to all of the Dialogue Journal podcasts by going to dialoguejournal.com and check out all of our past episodes. Dialogue Podcast Network.